Hey there, Kermaholics. It is your host, Kenzie. Welcome back for another Friday episode. Today is September 30th, which means tomorrow is the first day of the best month of the entire year. After the best month of the entire year is all of the major holidays, and it really got me thinking about a post that Abby Lynn Patterson's mom made on Facebook recently. I covered Abby Lynn on Missing Mondays about a year ago, and she is missing from Lumberton, North Carolina. Her mom made a very, very personal, detailed post about what it's like to have a missing or murdered loved one. In this post, she talked about how she had a lot of nightmares almost every night about finding Abby, and then when she would see Abby, she'd run up to her and Abby would just disappear. There's been times where she's had nightmares about finding Abby's remains, and she says these are nightly occurrences and that these feelings just never go away. I wanted to just talk about this real quickly because it's really been weighing on me ever since reading this post and knowing that all of the holidays are coming up. The holidays are really hard times for these families. So when you listen to these stories each day on all these true crime podcasts, keep in mind that these are somebody's loved ones. This is their real life and they're living a real life nightmare every single day. The same has been true for Connie Sutton since September 27th, 1997, when she got that dreaded call in the middle of the night that no parent ever wants to get. On the other line, it was the Franklin, Indiana Police Department calling her to tell her that there was a car abandoned in an intersection just a few miles away from her home. What they found inside this car was her 17-year-old daughter, Kelly Eckhart's wallet, and she was nowhere to be found. And there was no signs of Kelly in the area whatsoever. Connie recalls going down to the police department very frantic and they begin to question her about Kelly and she tells them this is not like her daughter to just vanish. She's not the kind of girl to not let them know where she's at, not the kind of girl to just go out without talking to her parents to let them know what time that she would be home. Connie says she remembers that night walking laps around the police department parking lot feeling overwhelmed and scared and just wondering what has happened to her daughter? There was no signs of foul play. There was no blood found in the car. Kelly's wallet was still in there and the keys were in the ignition. This leaves her parents and the police completely stumped until they find the one clue that helps create a theory on what may have happened to Kelly. And that is the fresh dent in the rear driver's side bumper of her car. Kelly Eckert grew up in Bogstown, Indiana, which is a very small, tight-knit farming community like a high majority of other Indiana towns. According to her family, friends, and those within Bogstown community, they all said that Kelly was known as the very beautiful, smart, down-to-earth, all-American sweetheart. Months prior to September 1997, Kelly finds out that she'll be attending her dream college, Franklin College, which is 20 minutes away from her home. She knows that it's going to be expensive, so she starts applying for scholarships and even takes a job at a local store. Kelly decides that even though she could live in the dorms at her school, she wants to continue living at home with her family. Her being the kind of girl that is just super close and family oriented, she says that she's willing to make the 20 minute drive to and from school each day. On the morning of September 26, 1997, the morning before that dreaded phone call in the middle of the night comes through, 
Kelly's mom says that she remembers it being just like every other morning in their home. Kelly was in the shower getting ready to leave for her classes that day, and Connie walks into the bathroom, sticks her head in, and tells Kelly that she loves her to have a great day and that she would see her after work that evening. Kelly gets out of the shower and heads to school, and after a full day of classes, sometime around 4 p.m., she leaves the school to start her shift at the local Walmart. She works about a six-hour shift that day, and at 10 p.m., she clocks out and meets her boyfriend, Anthony Evans, in the parking lot. The two of them go back into the store, and they shop for about an hour before the two of them head back into the parking lot, kiss each other goodbye, and they both head home in separate cars. Anthony would be the very last person to ever see Kelly alive. Kelly's mom, Connie, heads to bed before Kelly ever arrives home. Connie just assumes that, obviously, her daughter worked until 10 p.m. and she might be coming home a little late that evening. Connie did not have a worry in the world that her daughter was not coming home. In the middle of the night is when Connie gets that dreaded call that they found Kelly's car abandoned on the side of the road. Now a word... Now that the police know Anthony was the very last person to see Kelly alive, they of course start questioning him first. Anthony seems extremely confused and upset as to why they are questioning him when he watched Kelly drive away in her car and he knows that he would never do anything to hurt her. Kelly's family did their best to try and get Anthony to understand that when a woman goes missing and she's in a relationship, it is very common and normal for the police to start with the male that she's in a relationship with. Anthony's parents get him a lawyer very quickly and the attorney tells him not to answer any of their questions. As Anthony is being questioned and investigated by law enforcement, the community members of Bogstown are out searching high and low for Kelly. They're searching all the crevices, cornfields, old barns, sheds, riverbeds, and old cars for any sign of her. Some of Kelly's family members stated that they remember how hard it was trying to search for Kelly because they were so scared they would be the ones to possibly find Kelly not alive. As two days go by with search parties on foot, her family is starting to lose their hope that their Kelly is coming home alive. And a lot of the community members felt the same way, but they were so scared to say it out loud in fear of hurting Kelly's family. But they also felt that the outcome was not going to be good. After searching throughout the Bogstown area and having no luck locating Kelly or any clues to find her, Law enforcement takes a search to a neighboring county called Brown County on September 30th, 1997, just three days after her disappearance. On this particular day, Kelly's mom gets the call informing her that her nightmare is only going to continue. On the afternoon of September 30th, searchers find a partially clothed female body on the side of the road in Brown County. It would be positively identified as Kelly Nicole Eckhart. Once the autopsy was completed, it was concluded that Kelly was shot in the head, sexually assaulted and strangled to death by the strap on her bibs that she was wearing and the shoelaces from one of her own shoes. Her family and community members are feeling completely devastated knowing that they have lost such a sweet soul. How could somebody do something so horrible to such a good person? An entire month would go by before the police get any tips regarding Kelly's murder. An anonymous person calls into the tip line and tells the police that they believe a man named Michael Dean Overstreet may have some information about the murder of Kelly Eckhart. The anonymous caller was eventually identified as Michael's own brother, Scott. Scott had claimed that Michael had given him a call on September 27, 1997 and told him to meet him at a local motel. Scott said that he was hesitant about meeting Michael at the hotel, but... 
giving his brother's voice, he said it sounded totally off and he could tell that he was needing some help. When Scott goes over to the local motel, he says that when he arrived, Michael told him that he needed him to drive him and his girlfriend yes, girlfriend, even though he's married, to a different location and wanted him to drive Michael's van. Scott did not question it because he said that Michael told him that him and his girlfriend had been drinking and did not feel safe driving. Scott goes on to further tell law enforcement that from the side of his eye, he could see something white in the back of Michael's van, but he was not sure what it was. He says he agrees to drive Michael and his girlfriend to the location that he requested. Scott leaves his car at the local motel gets inside the van, and 15 minutes into the drive, Michael says that he does not want to go to the original location that he gave Scott that he wanted to go to Camp Atterbury. This Camp Atterbury is a campground in a neighboring county to where the motel was. When Scott asked Michael why the sudden change, Michael just says to him, because I took a girl. I'm assuming Scott had a lot of questions during this time, but what puzzles me is why he never supposedly asked Michael any deeper questions. Never questioned the situation, never never calls for help, never tells the police that he either did or did not see a girl in the car or did or did not see a body. I have so many questions as to what was going through his brother's head during this time. When they arrive at the camp, Scott pulls over to a very remote area at the campground property. He says he closes his eyes as Michael is getting out of the van with his so-called girlfriend. Michael tells his brother that he needs him to come pick him back up in about one hour, but Scott absolutely refuses and tells his brother no and says that he will have to call his wife and have her meet you at the rifle range here at the campground in two hours. After Michael gets out of the van, Scott drives off very quickly and heads over to the home of Michael and Melissa. When he gets there, he tells Melissa of the really strange encounter that he just had with his brother. Scott informs Melissa that she needs to go over to the rifle range to pick up Michael. Melissa says that she listened to what Scott had to say. She was in a little bit of shock trying to figure out why her husband was at a rifle range in the middle of the night, but she agrees to take Scott over to the motel to pick up his car and then head to go pick up her husband from the range. After she drops Scott off, Melissa heads over to Camp Atterbury and it's now sometime around 3.30 a.m. As Melissa is driving Michael's van, she takes a look in the back and notices shell casings and a can of mace that she has never seen before. When she arrives to the rifle range, she sees her husband standing there and he comes up to the van window. He's completely covered in sweat, his t-shirt is unbuttoned, and he is carrying a blanket and a rifle. Melissa asks her husband, what he was doing at the rifle range so late and all he has to say to her is if anybody asks about my whereabouts tonight you tell them that i was out late drinking with some friends michael gets in the van with melissa and the two of them drive home i cannot even imagine the thoughts that are going through her head right now because this is not her husband's typical behavior and his behavior gets even weirder. Two days after Melissa picks up Michael from the rifle range, the two of them go to a local car wash where Michael cleans out the back of his van. Melissa felt this was very weird because this van was a broken down piece of junk that Michael never cleaned. She said it had been years since Michael had ever taken this van to a car wash. It really stuck out to her that Michael was only cleaning the back of the van and ignored all of the other parts of the van. She felt if Michael was going out of his way to clean this van and he seemed like it was so important to him, why would he only focus on the back of the van and not the entire van itself? Not long after all of this information is relayed to the police, the police asked Scott if he would be willing to take them out to Camp Atterbury Rifle Range where he dropped off his brother. 
Scott does not hesitate at all and takes the police to the exact location where he dropped off his brother. As law enforcement was searching around the area, they find several of Michael's personal belongings that had been left out there for that entire duration. With the information that Scott gave the police and then finding Michael's personal belongings out of the campground, they were able to get a search warrant for Michael and Melissa's home. As investigators are executing the search warrant, they find the exact blanket that Michael took out to the rifle range that night and find a very detailed, drawn-out map to the exact location where Kelly Eckert's body was found. The investigative team recovered fibers from Michael's shirt that matched the fibers on the blanket that was taken to the range, and those were the same exact fibers that were taken from Kelly's clothing. Not only were they able to recover these fibers, they also found a dent in the front bumper of Michael's van that matched exactly to the dent in the back of Kelly's car. The police know that they have an airtight case against Michael with the fibers in the map that were found inside his home, but they get even better news when they find out that the DNA sample that Michael gave was an exact match to the sperm that was found inside Kelly's body. With all of this solid evidence against Michael, they were able to arrest him and charge him with murder, felony murder, rape as a class B felony, and confinement as a class B felony. The state of Indiana did not hold back when it came to trying to sentence Michael as they had sought out the death penalty and they said that they had three very good reasons why the death penalty could hold. One, it was because Michael committed the murder also while attempting to commit rape. Kelly was in fact the victim of rape and Michael had been convicted for that. And Kelly was the victim of kidnapping, which Michael had been convicted for. Michael Overstreet stood trial between April 24th and May 18th of 2000 and was convicted on all counts. During this trial under Indiana state law, the jury had to make a recommendation to the judge as whether the death penalty should happen or if the court should throw this sentence out. When Michael stood trial, the jury actually very much recommended the death penalty. Once the court did a very thorough evaluation of all of the evidence, the entire court case, the judge said that they agreed with the jury's recommendation. The court determined that the prosecution did a phenomenal job proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Michael was responsible for the kidnap, rape, and murder of Kelly Eckhart. Not only was he given the death penalty, but they also added on 20 years for each charge of kidnap, rape, and murder. In 2007, Michael, of course, files an appeal to overturn his conviction, but thankfully the judge denied that appeal and he is currently still sitting on death row waiting for his day. Michael Overstreet getting convicted to death does not bring back the Eckhart's daughter. This does not make it any easier on them, and they still face so many challenges ahead. So like I said in the beginning of this episode, when you hear these stories, really think about the fact that this is somebody's real life, and this is somebody's real life living nightmare, and they face tough times day in and day out. Grammaholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join a Crimeholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at crimeholics.podcast or you can follow me personally at this is Kenzie, K-E-N-Z-I underscore. Crimeholics, as always, be aware and take care.